Today's scripture reading is from Matthew chapter 18, verses 21 through 35. All right. Then Peter came and said to him, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times. Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle the accounts with his slaves. When he had begun to settle them, one who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. But since he did not have the means to repay, his Lord commanded him to be sold along with his wife and children and all that he had, and with repayment to be made. So the slave fell to the ground and prostrated himself before him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will repay you everything. And the Lord of that slave felt compassion and released him and forgave him the debt. But that slave went out and found one of his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii, and he seized him and began to choke him, saying, Pay back what you owe. So his fellow slave fell to the ground and began to plead with him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will repay you. But he was unwilling and went and threw him in prison until he should pay back what was owed. So when his fellow slaves saw what had happened, they were deeply grieved and came and reported to their Lord all that had happened. Then summoning him, his Lord said to him, You wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave in the same way that I had mercy on you? And his Lord, moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers until he should repay all that was owed him. My heavenly Father will also do the same to you, if each of you does not forgive his brothers from your heart. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Um, Let me pray real quick, and then we'll get right into the word. Thank you, Lord. Um, The work that you are doing in the world is so apparent. Clearly today you've shown us that it matters not how old you are, matters not the experience, but indeed what you are doing, that you, when you move in us, Lord Father, you can move mountains, even with the faith as small as the mustard seed or even in the faith as young as a junior high student. So help us to receive this word today, to hear the gospel, to meet you afresh, to experience you in a way that we haven't, and in doing so that our our lives will be transformed. So Father, may all things, everything that we do to this day, be unto your glory, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Um, David, you're never allowed to give a testimony again because you're coming after my job. Soon you're going to replace me, and I'll be out of a job. Just kidding. Uh, Really wonderfully well done. Um, I could not have said anything better. Uh, We've been going through the parables this summer, uh, and this week's parable, the topic is a familiar and simple one, forgiveness, the forgiveness dilemma, as I'm calling it today. And here's a couple things that we know about uh, forgiveness and things that we agree upon, I think, as a society. One, forgiveness is simultaneously beautiful and horrifying, depending on what side of the dilemma that you are on. Beautiful, when you need forgiveness, and you've been given it, but horrifying when you need to extend it because someone has wronged you. It's beautiful because I think most agree that forgiveness is good. It's the better way to live. There's studies even that prove that people who forgive tend to be emotionally, mentally, and even physically more healthy than those who don't. But it's horrifying on the same end because the greater the wrong we believe, the more we shouldn't give forgiveness because it's difficult to do so, And if you are the one who needs forgiveness for doing a really terrible thing, then you often understand that you probably won't get the forgiveness. Which means we have this very interesting understanding of forgiveness that the larger or bigger the debt, that there's this inverse relationship that you shouldn't give it. Particularly if you're a person who's giving forgiveness kind of willy-nilly, 
then people are going to run all over you and they're going to abuse you and so on and so forth. And so all of this kind of ties into this idea that forgiveness, though we agree it's really good, it's just really difficult all at the same time. And simply put, if we're thinking about the parable that we just read today, we can relate. Every single one of us, I think, has been on both sides of the coin where you've needed forgiveness and also where you've had to give it and maybe had difficulty and whatnot. Now, all of this kind of in the parable, right? Peter is trying to get at, right? In order to understand it, we have to look at verse 15 and verse 16. It'll be on uh, the screen for you, I believe. I think I put it on there. But Jesus is teaching about something else, and basically this is what he says. He says, if your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private, and if he listens to you, you have won your brother. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you, so that by the mouth or two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed, right? What Jesus is doing is teaching the disciples about what you're supposed to do when someone in the community or the church has sinned against you. And his suggestion and or his uh, solution is that we, what you need to do is to go deal with it in private. And if the person that sinned against you, he repents, then you forgive him and you've, re- and you've kind of repaired the relationship and regained another brother or a sister, right? And so then Peter, on the heels of this, he asks a very bold question. And he goes, okay, so Jesus, how many times in that scenario when a brother that I know has, for, uh, has uh, what's it called, sinned against me, how many times should I continue to forgive? Seven times? Now, two things you have to note here to kind of understand it. First, Peter is presuming something that we can't miss. The scenario isn't just a one-off kind of a thing. The scenario is the person you've forgiven is a brother, is a sister, is someone in the church, someone that you're going to see all the time, aka someone who you're going to need to continually forgive because they continually keep sinning against you. It's about continued forgiveness. And then the second thing that we need to know is that Peter knows the rabbinic code at the time, which is the standard of forgiveness is three times. If someone continues to sin, you forgive them three times, and after that, you no more. Because to do more than three is to be seen as a pushover or rollover, and they're just going to keep taking um, advantage of you. And so you know what? You can stop after three. So Peter, if you kind of know him, I'm named after him. He does what he thinks is best, and he takes the three, multiplies it, add one. At least that's what I would do. And then he goes, I'm going above and beyond what the thing is. Seven times, Jesus? And I think Peter is expecting that the response he's going to give them is, oh, good job, Peter. Good. You did so well, so humble, so loving of you. But as you know, the response isn't that. Jesus surprises everybody, Peter, disciples, all of us, and he says 70 times 7, or 77, depending on your translation, the Greek can mean either. But the whole point is this. If someone keeps sinning against you, the number of times you're supposed to forgive them is basically forever, because no matter how detail-oriented you are, no one's going to get to 77 times. No one's going to keep a notebook and say, oh, one, two, three, four, and then just keep tallying it and actually get to 77. Say, oh, I've done 77 or 490, and then basically stop after that. Don't miss this point. To Jesus, the standard of continual forgiveness against someone or for someone that's continually sinning or wronging you is lifelong. And all of this, I think, hits home for many of us. Because unless you're a hermit crab and you live in a cave by yourself, every long-lasting relationship that we have has this dynamic. You've made lots of mistakes with your parents or with your brothers or sisters or whoever, and they've made mistakes with you, and there's always this constant need to forgive continually over and over and over and over again. But like everyone else, including Peter, we think the same. 
We want to ask Jesus and we want someone to tell us and give us a standard and say, okay, I get it. I want to forgive. Forgiving is good. I get, I'm, I'm, I'm with all that, Jesus. But when is enough? When is enough enough? When can I say, you know what? I've forgiven enough and then be done with it, right? How long, Jesus? So then Jesus doubled down, doubles down and then he tells this parable And then in my opinion, he completely turns our understanding of sin and forgiveness upside down to the degree that one theologian, and I agree agree with him, he argues that no society in human history has ever agreed with or ever aligned with Jesus' teaching on forgiveness. No one else understands the world this way other than him. So let's break it down and then kind of dive in. So let me break down the parable for you real quick. Here's how it goes. Jesus says, our kingdom of heaven is one that has a king, and this king is wanting to settle his debts. Kings, many uh, back in those days, and and, rulers these days, have a lot of people who owe them stuff. But the thing that you can't miss is that it means that the king will settle debts. Our God will settle his debts. Don't be mistaken. And so the king is out wanting to settle debts, and in doing so, the king discovers a slave that owes him 10,000 talents. Now let me break down what this number is for you really quickly. You'll see it on the uh, board. One talent is equal to 6,000 denarii. One denarius is equal to one day's wage. So 10,000 talents is equal to 60 million denarii, right? 60 times 6K times 10K, right? And so 60 million days wage divided by 365 days in a year equals out to 164 million, no, 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 164,383.56 years. In the normal economy, if you make $50,000 a year, the amount of money you end up owing is $8,219,178,082.19. Basically, he can't pay. No slave is ever paying this debt. And then for me, I wonder, how in the world do you even get that kind of debt? I mean, for real? Like, what could you possibly borrow that could be that amount? How many people in the world even have $8 billion to the name? There's literally like, what, five of them or whatever? Like, how do you even get there? So obviously, he can't pay. But he ridiculously begs for the king to have patience that he can pay it back. Again, impossible. Ridiculous that he asks. But more ridiculous than all of that is that the king says, okay, you know what? Better than okay. You don't owe me anymore. He cancels the debt. Period. Done. Then you know immediately right after this, that same dude goes out. And I don't know, I feel like he's looking for somebody, but that's just me because I'm cynical. But anyways, he goes out and then immediately finds one of his fellow slaves who owes him the equivalent. If it's $8 billion that he owes, owes him the equivalent of about $15,000. Maybe $15,000 is a lot of money, but in comparison to $8 billion, it's chump change. It's nothing. So he finds a friend that owes him $15,000 and he says, yo, you owe me $15,000, bro, pay up. And the guy looks at him and says almost verbatim in Greek, word for word, the same thing he says to the king. I'm sorry, I, don't, I can't pay, but if you have patience with me, I will pay you back, I promise. And you know the response. He looks at him and he goes, oh yeah? And then he starts to choke him, literally, and says, pay up, bro. I don't know how someone says pay up when you're choking him, but that's what he does. And he goes, pay up, pay up. And he's like, I can't, I can't, I can't. He's like, well, then get out of here. And then throws him in jail until he can pay. Other servants, their, fa- their fellow friends, see this and they go, if they're Korean, they'd be like, oh, my, oh my, what, what's going on? 
wait, what? They can't process. So the only thing they know how to do is to go back to the king and say, king, 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 king. Um, um, you know that guy? Yeah, the, the one that's owed you $8 billion, 10,000 talents, um, and you forgave it to him. Uh, we just saw, he went outside and almost immediately found one of our former friends and um, the guy was in $15,000, but he wouldn't be willing to go ahead and wait and he threw him in jail. Not cool. So the king gets really angry and says, bring that servant back in. So he gets his guards and they bring him back in. And then he says, you wicked, wicked, wicked slave. How dare you do these things? I forgave you. You can't forgive him. What's wrong with you? And he says, throw him in the jail to the torturers until he can repay. And if you understand the context, it means he can't ever repay. It's never, and he's going to rot and die in jail. That's the story. All of this, because it's familiar, this parable, if you've grown up in the church, which is most of us, is familiar to us, probably actually sounds maybe not too bad to you. You might even say, you know what? The unforgiving servant, he had. He got what he had coming to him. I mean, let's be real. I mean, he deserved it. What else do you want to happen? Now, this summer, we've established that within every parable that Jesus speaks, there is a scandal that you understand something. It's very easy to understand. And then there's a surprise that Jesus throws in there. That's a 77 times thing. And then there's a scandal, a scandal to the point where we're so kind of jumbled up and kind of confused on the inside that we're forced to reorient what we understand about life to the way Jesus understands about life and then for us to change it. Then the question for us today is what is Jesus trying to scandalize in us and therefore teach us so that we can reorient everything? Because to be clear, forgiveness is way more than something good that good Christians should do. It's not something that we do as good Christians. Let me be clear. There's something way deeper than that. And to get to that, we've got to ask two questions. And the first is, what is forgiveness according to this parable? And the second is, why does it even matter? So the first question, what is forgiveness? Okay, what is forgiveness? And this is how Tim Keller defines it. He says this, Forgiveness means giving up the right to seek repayment from the one who harmed you, but it must be recognized that forgiveness is a form of voluntary suffering. Let me explain it to you like this, and this is how he explains it. He says, uh, and Goose is, uh, we'll just use Goose tonight because it's just important, right? So Pastor Goose, right, comes over to my house, and then I have a lamp, and he breaks the lamp. It's an Ikea lamp, so it's $50, okay? So Goose now owes me one of two things. He can either replace the lamp or just hand me $50. But either way, he has a debt of $50. And so in this situation, I have two choices. I can either let Goose, Juice, I can either let Pastor Goose pay for the lamp, which means he's out $50, or I can forgive him so he doesn't have to pay. Now, according to this definition, and I agree, it's actually not that simple. This is the voluntary suffering part that no one else likes to uh, understand. But because I forgave him and said, you know what, Goose, don't worry about it. You don't have to pay $50. Then either I will pay $50 to replace the lamp, or I will go with poor lighting in whatever room the lamp used to be in. Either way, I suffer one way or the other. There is no other way with forgiveness. Suffering is mandatory. Every single time. Now, let's say in the situation that money is not involved, like this. Let's say, Goose, I'll do it against him because I'm the bad person. Like, I sin against him and I go around and I just start saying all sorts of mess about who he is and all this other stuff and I just tarnish his reputation. 
No matter what, any situation, even if money's not involved, any situation when someone sins against you, there's always loss. Happiness, reputation, peace of mind, relationship, opportunity, whatever the case might be. But again, let's say I go around, I'm just tarnishing Goose all over the place. He's terrible, he's this, he's that, blah, blah, blah. I'm just going around talking a whole bunch of smack. Again, there's two choices that now Goose has. The first choice is he can try to make me repay by damaging and ruining my rep just the same. Oh, you hurt me? I hurt you. You damage my rep, I take your rep. The other option, number two, is he can refuse to give me the payback and rather absorb the damage that I've done. So his reputation is tarnished and he's got to do the unfortunate work of trying to build it all back up without tarnishing my reputation on the back end. Either way, I think you understand that there's going to be suffering. Either way, the victim, in this case, which is Goose, or the perpetrator, in which case this is me, is going to suffer, and there's no other way to go about it. Now, let's make one thing really clear, and you may not like this, but it's important. When Tim Keller says that not seeking repayment, absorbing the suffering is indeed important, we have to understand that this idea of not seeking repayment and then absorbing the suffering goes way deeper than most of us are willing to understand. AKA, seeking vengeance can so often be so subtle and sneaky, especially in today's day and age, and I call it fake forgiveness. For instance, things can go like this in this situation. The most obvious, right, that Goose can do to me because I sinned against him is be super cold or simply just to flat out avoid me altogether. For many of the younger ones who are in social media, it's kind of like you completely ignore the Instagram and their Twitter and everything. You never like anything. You never comment. You never respond. Nothing. You just whoop. They're done. Now, that's obvious. And somebody probably tell you, oh, you need to do something about that because that's really mean. But there's more subtle ways that we don't forgive and actually seek vengeance and seek repayment. You can go around and actually make little cutting remarks. Or you can do little things and just remind them of the things that they've done. Like, Goose can go around and just, like, say little things like, oh, yeah, Pete, he's so funny. He makes all these jokes, but sometimes it hurt. Like, little things like that. We're just kind of always reminding people of the same thing, right? Or you can be, or Goose could be really so much more edgy with me than he's with everybody. Like, he's nice to everybody, but when it comes to me, he's just a little bit short and a little edgy. That's reminding me, oh, yeah, you did something wrong to me, right? But you can go even more subtle than that. And this one might maybe surprise you. Goose can then, because he's hurting and, he's, and, he's, and, he, and his reputation has been tarnished, he can go around and ask others like, hey, does this make sense? Does it make sense that Pete would do this to me? Like, why, why, why is it this way? Is, is it because he's wrong? Is it because of this and this and this? And you try. You, you try to understand. Why would he do that? Da, da, da. And then one person gives him an answer. He's not satisfied. He goes to another person. And he goes all around asking all these other people, do you, like, do you get why this would happen? Like, why are they doing this to me? You do it under this guise that you're trying to seek sympathy and you're trying to seek support by doing all these things, but all you're really doing is going around and actually saying, you know what, Peter's a really per terrible person and he's, you know, he speaks all these terrible things and I don't know why he's doing it. I'm really innocent here and all those types of things. That's why Jesus says to go deal with the person who has sinned. And last week, if you learned third-party reconciliation, if you remember what that is, that might be a way, but either way, you deal with the person. And then even more subtle, maybe. When you've been hurt and Goose has been hurt by me, he refuses to give up the pain to God. You know, like where he will continually replay the hurt and keep it fresh in his mind so you can always be on guard with that person. Maybe he's not doing even the other things. He's not talked to nobody. He just kind of ate it. But then as soon as I get around him, he's like, mm -mm. 
because you haven't given up the hurt and the pain to the Lord? Or deep, deep, deep inside the recesses of your heart, you're secretly rooting that the other person might fail just a little bit? Or more importantly, that they would maybe just one day understand just a little bit of the pain that they've caused you? All these things. Though the world, if you do these things, would say, oh, you know what, that's not that bad. It's okay, it'll be all right. Jesus, I think, clearly says, no, 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 that's not really what's happening here. Because if you decide to forgive the way Jesus understands forgiveness, it means you can't do any of the things that we just talked about and you just must suffer, absorbing the pain completely while at the same time wishing and wanting that nothing of the pain that you know will go to the other person who's caused it to you. This is why we've always said that forgiveness requires three parts, justice, mercy, and grace. I've used this example before, and I'll kind of go over it really quickly this time. Justice is as it sounds. Justice is getting what you deserve. It's getting what is deserved. Pretend that teenage Pete murdered this dude named Jerome's daughter. I always use that name because nobody in this church is named Jerome, and so this way. Teenage Pete goes and uh, murders Jerome's daughter. By justice's standard, I deserve either life in jail or death penalty, period. End of story. That's justice. I think everyone understands that. The second part of forgiveness is mercy. It's not getting what is deserved. It means that teenage Pete who married Jerome's daughter don't, I, that doesn't get life in jail or the death penalty. Jerome says, you know what? You, mar- you murdered my daughter, but it's okay. You know what? You don't have to pay for that. But as you understand, in this situation, Jerome will then suffer the agony and the pain of what I've done to him. I took away his daughter and every single birthday, every single Christmas, every single Thanksgiving, all that kind of stuff will be painful from here on out. And no matter how courageous or valiant his decision is, it does not undo the suffering that he is feeling. And even to this point, I think most of us agree that if we can get to this point in forgiveness, we've done a really, really, really good job, right? Jerome is like, wow, who is there like him? But there's a third part of forgiveness that Jesus talks about, and it's called grace. And grace is getting what isn't deserved, where the tables flip. You see, in this situation, teenage Pete, who's a murderer, is a felon. He's a convict. It's on his record. He won't ever go to college. He won't ever get a job. None of those things will happen, which means the only life prospect that I have as a convicted murderer, as a teenager, is to basically go back into crime, dealing drugs or whatever the case might be. And so Jerome, knowing all of this, because he's not a fool, recognizes what's happened, and he'll go, you know what? Actually, I can do a bit more. And he says, you know what? I no longer have a child, and Pete no longer has a family because everyone has abandoned him. We're actually going to adopt him, take him, him, homeschool him, and give him a job at my company so he can work and have a future. We will take care of everything of his life because he has no other option. That's grace. Justice, mercy, and grace, the keys to forgiveness. Though I didn't deserve it, I got a life. Though I didn't deserve it, Jerome pardoned my wrong and then gives me life by adopting me. And if you understand this, you understand that this is exactly what Jesus does to us. Though we did not deserve it, he gives us life. He takes on our death on the cross and not only that, he gives us life eternal, the things that we do not deserve. This is forgiveness. This is the 77 times or 70 times seven forgiveness that Jesus is talking about. We'll let that sink in just for a second. But now to question number two. Why does this all matter? What's the big deal? You may have noticed 
that this story actually has a terrible ending, which means that my wife, Christina, would never have watched the movie if it became one because the ending is bad. The slave doesn't learn anything. He gets forgiven this $8 billion debt, and yet he gets thrown right back into jail to rot there and die forever and ever. It's the same fate he would have gotten if he were never able to pay back and the king wasn't forgiving. And you understand that the king in this parable is God, which means if we like the slave, don't miss this, if we like the slave who have been forgiven by the king are not able to forgive our other fellow human beings, and remember, remember what forgiveness is to Jesus. And remember what fake forgiveness is, okay? Then Jesus clearly tells us, and this should get our attention, that if we are not able to do this, then my heavenly Father will also do the same to you that he did to the wicked, unforgiving servant, which is to lock you in jail, hand you over to torturers, and then you will spend the rest of your life because you can never repay this debt forever and ever and ever until you rot and you die. Sorry for the graphic language. I apologize, but it's just the way that it is. And there's no, oh yeah, but Jesus loves you attached to the end of this parable. Our lack of forgiveness, having been forgiven, means we end up in jail, thrown to the torturers until we can pay, which is never. It's why at the end of the Lord's Prayer, Jesus says, if you forgive others for their sin, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, then your Father will not forgive your transgressions. You will be handed over to the torturers to die until you can repay, which is never. Now, we got to quickly clarify what Jesus isn't saying and then kind of dive right back in. Jesus isn't saying that the only way that we'll be forgiven is if we forgive others in the sense that if we forgive, then we earn like forgiveness points. And then Jesus goes, oh, you have enough forgiveness points, so then now I'll forgive you. That's not what Jesus is talking about. You don't earn God's forgiveness in any way, shape, or, or point. But clearly, I think you would agree that God has something very important to say to us. Because I think all of us can agree that every single one of us, if we're being really honest, we have people in our lives that are really hard to love and more importantly, really hard to forgive. So here's the point. The point that Peter's trying to get at and the point that we're all trying to get at is this very simple thing. How is it possible that this dude who was forgiven in eight Billion dollar debt couldn't turn around and just wait for his other slave to pay him the $15,000 later. How is that possible? And again, the thing, the way I think it is, if it's somehow possible in this economy to accrue an $8,000 debt or $8 billion debt, then getting $15,000 doesn't seem like that big of a deal to me, right? I didn't do the percentages. The percentage is really low, 8 billion compared to 15,000. None of us have ever seen $8 billion before. I've seen $15,000 before. Like, you know, you can kind of get it. So though, as I think about it, right, we're asking ourselves that question because the slaves react the same way. They see the slave and they're like, what's going on? How could he not do this? And maybe you're thinking, you know what? Maybe Jesus is trying to really warn us. He's trying to give us like this like warning, like, like we do to our kids, like, be careful. You're, ooh, you're getting real close to the line. If you get across that line, you're going to get, you know. But I don't think that's what Jesus is doing. So the question is, how could this slave not understand what's going on and actually do this? And the only way I can explain, and the only way I can make sense of the idea that this slave who had just given, been forgiven $8 billion wouldn't be able to forgive 15000 is one thing and one thing only for me. 
is that the only way that he could possibly logically, sanely, unless he was an insane maniac, right, sanely do this is that he has no idea the difference between $8 billion and $50,000. He thinks they're one and the same. Like, no big difference between the two. Because if he understood the difference between the two, it's not logically possible for him to do this. In Thailand, uh, and I shared this story a few times, but in Thailand, at PNF and other things, in Thailand, we, uh, we're in Pattaya, and Pattaya is one of the sex trafficking uh, leaders uh, in the country and in the world, and we went and drove down this street called Soy Six, okay? And the street is literally, like, maybe not that much wider than this stage, like, from front to front here, speaker, maybe a little bit wider. There's basically enough space for a car to go one way, and then there's, like, four or five feet on the other end for people. And this entire street, if it's from here to there, it's just bars, 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 bars. And they're all outdoor kind of bars, and basically the idea is when you drive down, right, you see the bar on the inside, you see the TV screens and all that kind of stuff, and you see these very scantily clad women on the outside, and they're just sitting there like this at the edge. We were told by a missionary that the reason why we have to drive down the street and not walk by the street was because Daniel and I, being the men in the group, literally would have been grabbed by the girls and then we would have been ushered in. And so we drove down. And if you understand, again, for the younger ones, I apologize. But the basic idea is the girl's job is to entice men, mostly. Maybe women too, but entice people, men, to come in, to have a few drinks, buy them drinks, spend a bunch of money, and then spend more money, right, to sleep with them. That's the goal. And they do this every single night, multiple times a night. And so we know this, and we're being told this, and we're seeing this on the street. We're seeing men walking up and down the street and doing these things. And of course, in our group, it's Daniel and I, and then we had four of our, uh, of, of our girls, and we're going down. And after we did all of this, basically, understandably, all of our girls said that they were just so upset so wrecked on the inside, but more particularly, they were so mad at the men that they could do this heinous and terrible thing. How could they be on the street? How could they treat these women? How could they spend their money and do all these things? And they're really angry. And then maybe not coincidentally, the next morning we went to visit the prisons. And again, understandably, right? As soon as we entered the prison, one of the first prisons we went to, there were four cells. Three cells of them were full of men and one of them were full of women. And guess where the women, ladies of our group were? They were right with the women. And if you ask them, the reason why is because they couldn't quite get around the idea that they had no idea why the men were in jail. And so they had no idea and they couldn't quite decide if they were there because they had been doing prostitution or sex trafficking or other. And so they just couldn't look them in the face. So they'd rather just talk to the women. Again, understandable. I totally get it. But then Daniel and I were sharing about our night. And then Daniel, as we were driving down the street, he said, I recognized and I had such difficulty driving down that street because I recognize the only thing that separates me and those men at the bar is the middle and the glass between the two of us. And I'd be lying to you if I wouldn't tell you that as I walked down, as I drove down that street and I'm praying my heart out and I want to see who I'm praying for, that I opened my eyes and I didn't find one of them just slightly bit attractive. Massive repenting going on in my heart. It was so difficult to be there. And this is not that Daniel and I are better versus girls. This is a very simple thing that I'm trying to illustrate. And the idea is the difference between the girls on our team and Daniel and I is that we are men and we know the struggle of what those other men are going through. We get it on some level. Because of our experiences, because of the way that we grew up, Daniel and I knew that our debt in that situation driving down Soy 6 was 8 billion. And the ladies on our team 
because thankfully their lives have been just so much more protected than Daniel and I's. They didn't quite get that their sin in that moment was eight billion, but they thought it was 15,000. Miroslav Wolf calls this the double exclusion. It's the idea that in this instance in the parable, the slave has excluded his fellow slave from the community of humans, all the while excluding himself from the community of sinners. Basically, this slave forgot that he was a sinner, a slave capable of wrong. And he forgot that his friend who was a sinner is a human being just like him. He all of a sudden put two people in two different categories. So what Jesus is trying to say, I think, is this. That if we are not able to forgive, if we're stuck in the fake forgiveness area, it means that somehow we have made those who we cannot forgive much less than human, somehow just evil and nasty, not deserving the, the human dignity of being loved and forgiven while making ourselves somehow above the sinner. And therefore we can't forgive because we think there's a difference. Which then explains, I think, why Jesus would say that if this is the case, we won't be forgiven, rather be thrown into jail. Because it shows that somehow we think we're above those sinners, quote unquote. Which means then if you really break it deep down, it might mean that we've actually never asked God for true forgiveness, but rather something that looks more like God, excuse this sin, overlook it, push it aside, or forget it. It's not that big of a deal. Won't you just love me? Kind of forgiveness and not the true kind. Which might mean that we've never really truly repented. Which is why forgiveness isn't something you work on. It's something that God allows us to live out. Two days later on our trip, we had a difficult conversation because a lot of things were going on in our group. And after all of this, and we kind of confronted our sins with one another, we were talking to one another. And then one of the ladies in our group, it hit her. I'll just tell you, her name is Ellie. She shared it on Wednesday, so I think I can share. And then she later goes, hey, Pastor, can I talk to you? And so we decided to kind of talk together. And this is what she said, as close to what I can remember. And she goes, I'm really disappointed in myself because I prepared for six months. I prepared six months for this and I couldn't even for one week stay away from being angry, hurt, bitter, and talking poorly about people behind their back and doing all these things. I couldn't keep myself for just one week to do the things that we trained six months for. I couldn't keep myself from being angry at you, talking bad about you, at the men at Soy 6, all these things. I couldn't get over how angry I was at those men, how they could do what they were doing. But as we were talking, then all of a sudden it hit me. And I knew that moment because all of a sudden she started to break down and these tears started flowing down her face. And she said, I couldn't get, but then I realized, how can I be angry with any of those men when my sin is just as wicked and as wretched as theirs? It's what David said today. Maybe we think that our sin is limited to lying to our parents, not doing our homework, or whatever it is that you do. Maybe it's not as cruel or as terrible as the things that people in the abortion clinics do or whatever, but how? She said, what gives me the right to be upset at them when I recognize that I'm no better and just as terrible as they? How can I not love people? How can I hold grudges and gossip and do all these things when I am just as despicable as they and in need of God's love as much as them? In that moment, David, Ellie, and people who've understood this, I think it's understanding the crux of what Jesus is getting at. 
I think the main central point of this is not that forgiveness is good. That's really good. It's not that God forgives us because we understand that too. But I think the idea is that we don't quite understand the depth of our sin and what Jesus had to go through to pay the unfathomable and unpayable $8 billion unpayable debt. And what God goes to cancel it. Because if we truly fathomed and understood, even a little bit, I think, the way that this works, then there's no real way that you and I are not able to forgive one another or at least torn up about the fact that we can't forgive others. And let's be real. Whatever sin anyone has committed against most of us in our lives, thanks be to God, because our lives, I think for the most part, have been outside of crazy tragedy. The sin that they commit to us is nowhere close to the sin that we commit against God. Which then begs to ask the question, how can we look at the cross knowing Jesus who knew no sin, who became our sin, took away that sin by being nailed to the cross and bleeding out, being separated from the only Trinity Unitarian self he's known forever and then being put into the depths of hell and then rising again. How can we look at that and look at anyone else and say, you're not deserving of the same grace that I get every single day? In full disclosure, I'm not saying I do this perfectly. See, the difference is that the king, when he looks upon the slave, it says the Lord of that slave felt compassion. That word in Greek is splankna. It means your guts are literally being ripped apart because your heart is hurting, is hurting so much. And that compassion moves Jesus. It moves his king to forgive. Interestingly, that word compassion, splankna, is only ever used to describe Jesus and nobody else in the New Testament. And of course, that slave goes out and the moment he sees, all he saw was the money. All he saw was the thing that he was owed and he did not have any compassion. So brothers and sisters, the question that we must ask ourselves It's what happens when we drive down Soy 6. What happens when we go to the abortion clinic? What happens when others wrong us? What happens when we read the news article of the shooters in our country that we've experienced so too often to count? What happens in our hearts? How do we understand our own debt in comparison to the debt of others? Because what Jesus seems to suggest in this parable Maybe unfortunately for us, that if we cannot tangibly forgive others and have no desire to do so, then it may signal that we don't know what we've been forgiven. And the end result of all of that is we get thrown into jail to the torturers to repay the thing that we cannot repay forever. And as I invite the praise team up, you might be thinking, oh my goodness. It's a whole lot of doom and gloom. Where's the truth? Where's the goodness, Pastor Pete? And here's the goodness.
the slave who owed the $8 billion debt. When summoned by the king, the only words that were required is, oh Lord, have patience. Please forgive. And the Lord forgives him. Which means the key to all of this isn't being overwhelmed by what we haven't done or cannot do or unwilling to do. I think the key to then all of this is that we would go to our Lord. We'd fall upon our knees and say, Lord, would you forgive me? And trust that he will again and again and again. That if you're in this place where you're like, oh my goodness, I haven't forgiven A, B, C, D, whatever the case might be, that rather than doing all those things, that in this moment that you and I, we would all go to our God and say, God, I'm a wretched sinner who owes an unpayable debt. Will you forgive me? Ending the cycle of hate and pain and all these things. And so church, we first begin not by measuring how well we forgive others, but by being humble to go before our God and say, I owe you so much more than I could ever repay, but will you, because you are the king who can actually forgive $8 billion, will you do it? And will I trust in it? And then will you then help me to live that same truth out to others? So in this moment, as we ask the praise team to lead us, before we sing, Will you take a moment and just go to the cross and ask that of our God? I come with all of this, Lord, but will you forgive me? Because only you can. And in doing so, then will you help me to live it out to others? Go before him, the gracious and merciful Father who forgives all your sin because only he can and find freedom and joy there. And then when you're ready, join us as we sing in closing.